Video Vortex Podcast respectfully acknowledges that we are recording on the lands of the Bunurong, Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge and remind people that sovereignty was never ceded. What is it that we're watching? Distinguished guests, welcome to Video Vortex. Yes, it's just down there, you can't miss it. Welcome everyone to another Video Vortex. This week we're leaving the train wrecks behind and going with full-born vehicular car wrecks. Anyway, (laughs) welcome again to Steph. Hello. And Ben. Hello. And I am Ben, who is now Bucks. Bucks. Yeah. It's going to take a while to get used to that. (laughs) so strange. This week, we've gone from the macrocosm of national cinema, and we're shrinking it right down to the teeny little world of cars, which isn't teeny at all, but size-wise, a little smaller. (laughs) Yeah, not really, but depends (laughs) on what kind of car you drive, I suppose. (laughs) That's true. I I nearly got cleaned up by a fairly large Ford uh, flatback today, so that was fun. What's the (laughs) smallest country in the world, and what's the largest car in the world, and how similar in size are they? Smallest country would probably be well Vatican, Vatican City. City or yeah. or Andorra oh, yeah. because actually they would have the least number of roads because they're up in the mountains basically between <laughs> Spain and France. Okay, and then what's the largest car in the world? Oh, I have no like standard car. I, I don't know because I think I think people have made some pretty weird and <laughs> wonderful experiments when it comes to cars because that's just part of the. The nature of cars is the modifications and things. So I'm sure there's a plenty of weird and wonderful things that we've never seen before. <laughs> Standard cars, I'm guessing, has to be like those like tactical Jeeps and SUVs and things because they're just those Humvees and stuff like that are just massive beasts. Mm-hmm. All I can think of, I think it was Pedita Durango, where he tells a story about his mother or grandmother living on the tiny island where there was only one road that goes around and around in circles and there were only two <laughs> cars on the island and it was inevitable that one day they would crash into each other. <laughs> Apparently yeah. the Lincoln Continental Convertible is the heaviest produced car at 2,591 kilograms. Largest oh, vehicle yeah. ever produced by American market manufacturers. Yeah. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that reminds me of, because I, in preparation for this, I showed my, my husband uh, a car movie that I quite enjoyed that Bucks and I watched a few years back for the first time called Hit and Run, uh, which was the screenplay was written and stars Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell, who in real world are married and play a couple. The short version of the synopsis is that they're trying to get halfway across America by a certain time. They have to get to LA by three o'clock, two days from then, and things happen along the way. And his car in that, the first car that he has in that is the Lincoln Continental, um, which he says in the film has something insane, like 600 horsepower 
because of the work that he and his father did building and all this kind of stuff. And I actually saw it posted on Facebook today, the same car, because that was one of the quirks of the film was that this was basically a side project. All of the money, all of the funding that they had basically went to licensing for the music that they play. <laughs> Otherwise, it was like friends and old co-workers like um, Dax Shepard spent a lot of time on Parenthood. So his on-screen wife in that was one of the other key players, all that kind of stuff, like all mates doing this outside of hours. And most of the cars in that film are Dax Shepard's personal collection. So it's this weird sort of duality of him showing off, not showing off, you know, being very cool car guy without being overt cool car guy. And yeah, the Lincoln Continental is his is his baby in that film and in real life. <laughs> what? How did P.I.? So this is kind of perplexed me. Why do people collect cars? Appreciation, like art. Well, it is, a, but it's, it's, they're, they're moving vehicles, aren't they? You know, like, they're, they've yeah. got... They're moving you know, you works of art, Ben. Move, exactly. Yeah. You can only, you can only <laughs> drive one at a time. There are many days of the week, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Wear one pair of underwear at a time, really. Really. Yeah. Yeah. You could put one car in front of the other and push them along in a big row, you know, human centipede-like, and it's kind of like wearing multiple pairs of underwear at once. Well, but also a car doesn't a car doesn't wear out and and get smelly after one it day does. Of driving it. My car needs such a clean right now, and some bird shit on the with the side mirror to, while I was parked, and I had it. It was tucked in. You got the mirrors to come in, and somehow it's still shit on the. <sighs> I reject your statement, Ben. Okay. Wow. I think car culture is a bit strange, and I think we'll discover as we go through this episode as well, because the first thing that I did in prep for this episode was to kind of think of some common themes about cars and car films, and I just, off the top of my head, came up with, I kid you not, probably about a dozen different sort of themes that kind of linked a handful of films that I've seen, and I know there's way more car films out there that I haven't seen or that heavily feature a specific car. And I think it's like art, you know, it's one of those things that there's just an appreciation for them. There's a history with them, not just the manufacturing and where they came from, but the things that you can do with them. Um, mechanics as well, they have a I think they do have an artist's mind sometimes because they look at this hunk of metal and they can see all these permutations and possibilities and, oh, if we do this, then we can get that in and we can add so much uniqueness and flavor. And It's a challenge. It's like collecting your favorite comic book or something like that. You know, you need that one piece to make that restoration just absolutely perfect, a mint condition factory badge or steering wheel or... I don't know. I'm not that much of a mechanic, but I do have a car appreciation. As you were saying that, it kind of, I think I started to develop clearer interest in cars when I started reading about car designs that never really went anywhere. Mm. I mean, like the really strange ones that were like, yeah, and this... those are art. Yeah, they're really bizarre and they, they were never going to work. But as, a, you, you know, one model ever created, it's a unique experiment in how do we alter how this functions and how it fits together, that helped me come back around to seeing cars overall better because it's through their distortion you could see the elegance and simplicity and evolution of their design. 
These days, cars are pretty much of a muchness. Uh, there's really yeah. not that much variation. There's not that many that really stand out as iconic or representative even of time or place. But you go back in time and you get that a lot. And then, you, yeah, as I said, you look at these sort of experimental side cars that never went anywhere. And, and some of them, you can, it's like you can, you can see when you look back at, you know, Bugatti and people like that, the great mm. names of car creation when you see the projects that they were working on that went nowhere, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> when you see them really going off into their own stream and leaving behind the, the river, you're like, oh, yep, that's okay. I, get, I can see the artist, like an architect or anything, you know, a sculptor or even a filmmaker, uh, how much yeah. the, the passion and imagination is just firing. And Ben, to go back to your point, I think the answer is, hoarding <laughs> i think just like a hoarder who will collect things because you know they just have a knack for finding things and appreciating them and then keeping them i think there's a strong element of hoarding and just wanting to have something pretty i mean it's not always about driving it's sometimes it's about just appreciating what it is well, it's, it's interesting because uh, a lot of the time when people are, you know, really passionate and interested about co not collecting, but like looking at or maintaining a particular car, it'll be one particular car, maybe a second one. But, sure. but then there's people who have garages full of either Jay Leno. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it's like, what are they? What are they going to do with them? On one hand, it's it, you've got this really interesting, almost class divide that that happens where it's like who who can afford a hundred cars it's it's, yeah. it's it's people who don't necessarily actually appreciate them they they're just symbols of accumulation and wealth and you know as you say hoarding but maybe of a different nature the cinema has its own connections to that aspect you know it, it is far easier now to to have a library at home of movies and a great sound system TV, but in the past, it's video being a video collector was very expensive. Yeah. Having your own home cinema set up was hugely expensive. Even today, the, an actual proper home cinema set up is very prohibitive for most people to have, so we're still in the reduced mode of just on a TV. So there are correlations mm. between the two there as there are in all kinds of, or many kinds of collectability. But I suppose you would use that more regularly than someone with a hundred cars would. Use, <laughs> you know how many you know. times I've watched my ten thousand odd movies. Well, sure. I was going to say, what seat. percentage? <laughs> what percentage of your films that you currently have have you not watched? I think it's a pretty I'm, high number. Yeah, That's I'm getting true. through it. I've, I've whittled. I know you are. I know you are. But at no, the same rate that you're purchasing new back. ones, I haven't. I haven't been bought, purchasing much this year because you know end of the world and all but I'm, I'm with everything yeah i suppose it's interesting because the the car as a you know as as a as a thing as an object w was designed as a means of transportation fundamentally you know it's a it's a means mm. of getting somewhere from one place to another faster than a than a horse could well, the first one's at the same speed that well, the horse yes, could, but course. the difference was the horse didn't die. Like the horse, yeah, but, you know, could only go for a few, certain number of hours in a day, whereas yeah. the the first cars could keep theoretically keep going sure. if you had the arm strength to wind it up again. The horses <laughs> definitely broke down less than the early cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, true. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to necessarily clean up after a car in this no true. never mind <laughs> I, but i think it's interesting that it, 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 there's that element of 
design um, the same way that you would have, like you mentioned, architects. And for some reason, my mind immediately went to fridges. Okay. Because there's the same way that people will put in their minds to creating any sort of object with an inherent functionality, but making it more designed or more artistic than it has a right to be. And I think that it's interesting that there is still at its core this functionality. You know, it's an appliance, after all, in a way. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to me the, the way that those two worlds uh, overlap. But that arguably makes it more valuable than artwork because it's, mm. like you say, it's got a sense of functionality mm. to it. It is a, a, a thing that gets you from A to B. And to your earlier point about it being car collecting, specifically mm. being a sort of a class based thing mm. uh my counterpoint to you is if you jump onto netflix right now there is a tv show <laughs> called i think it's called rust valley okay i've watched it and i've very much enjoyed it because there's some really wacky characters on that show but mm -hmm. basically this is a, a you know six foot four tall blonde dreads down to his waist um you know sort of hippie glasses Sounds like he's a heavy smoker or has been for about 40 or 50 years and sounds like he permanently needs to cough and clear his throat, but he can't. And he's in the very rural part of Canada, Alberta, I think. I could be wrong about that. He has two or three paddocks of cars. Wow. Basically, he's he's a restorer. That's what the show is about. It's about him trying to make money by restoring these cars. Okay. And no doubt, he is a hoarder mm -hmm. because he's he's just got garages and trailers and trailers and trailers of parts and bits and all these cars. But basically, most of the episodes, he goes out with him, his son, and his, I hesitate to say business partner because that makes him sound very capable, but wacky mechanic guy whose butt crack is always showing and is, you know, the guy who accidentally starts a fire on his hand, that kind of shit. <laughs> um but he's the brilliant mechanic that somehow helps get these projects across the line. And they go out to a paddock, and the beginning of every episode, and they go, what should we do? What should we do? And they walk around, and Mike, who's the, the main guy, he literally goes, oh, there's this car. And he names the car, and he's like, no, this one's really interesting because... And he jives straight into the history of this vehicle, what makes it interesting, what makes it unique, why it was a good seller or a bad seller, how many different models it had, that kind of thing. And then he inevitably goes on to say, yeah, let's try and restore it, and chaos ensues afterwards. But he has this innate passion and love for just this one singular thing. Yeah. It just happens to be a car, which has so many variables and so many different versions, brands. It's just incredible. Absolutely. But I think, you know, inherently there is this restorative functional context to it rather than just having it to showcase that you can afford it no yeah it's not about affording it the class aspect is the people who do just buy it to show it off and have it but yeah yes there is actually and this is one of the reasons why i really want to talk about this there's a lot of connections between cars and cinema in really interesting ways and another mm. way is the yeah. kind of diy aspect that mm. it's oh, a yeah. really difficult expensive piece of technology but it is entirely possible to work hard and to put something together yourself and work on it on weekends and turn it into something really awesome and magic, like a little indie film that your mates have been making over a year and then takes all the festivals mm. by storm or the road shows or whatever. It's that kind of connection yeah. of that, that really like individual drive and where you do get fascinating characters like the fellow you're talking about 
who just understand it and figure out ways to do it and ways to shape it on no budget. Mm. Going back to where cars started, cars weren't really a viable thing until the Model T mm. Ford. And part of that is because of yeah. Ford figuring out his Ford factory system and being able to produce them a certain way and create them efficiently and quickly at a quite high quality level, which is very much the same as cinema. You know, cinema was often held mm. back at various points by its technological limitations. And every time it clicked past those, it expanded and took over even more of the consciousness and the sort of entertainment sphere. Yeah, definitely. So the horse is theatre to the car's <laughs> cinema. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny you say that because um, one quote that I did have for this discussion, which I think is very much outlining what you're saying, is that cinema is the technological sibling of the car, born of the same era, neither knows of a time without the other, mm. which I thought was a really nice summation of... Like you just said, the brand new technology leaps and bounds and sort of once they figured out a formula that worked, they can do it again. They can adapt it, alter it, and then they find another formula that works and so on and so forth. Yeah, the car and cinema both bound up so much in the idea of modernity and the, mm. one of the absolute key aspects of modernity is speed, the escalation uh, and increased speed of all aspects of life you know that's, do you see that that's what a lot of the art deco art is representing in those you look at the art of the trains and stuff with those angular lines or the rocketeer oh, yeah. poster <laughs> yeah that's about speed and movement and that's exactly what cinema is speed and movement to create this illusion but it's also ben you mentioned transportation cinema yeah. is about transporting you to another place conquering time and space exactly i've got lots of notes here and weird random esoteric bizarre stuff but one of the worst <laughs> essays i ever wrote at university was trying to talk about cars and eroticism it was for a cinema and sexuality subject i'm like why am i writing about cars and modernity and this what am i doing and it was just the worst it was so bad but my end point was <laughs> david cronenberg's the fly because the transportation pod is the ultimate end and next step beyond modernity in the car, the postmodern car that eradicates space and movement and you instead just go from one place to the other. But then we pay a price. I'm so surprised that you said the fly and not crash. <laughs> no, no, see, crash is behind that. Crash is one of the steps you take to get to the fly. Cronenberg does everything backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, like, everything you were talking about, especially in terms of, like, cars and eroticism, I was like, this is crash. This is exactly what was happening in the film and, you know, before that, the book, which I read just recently just in preparation for this podcast because I'd seen the film ages ago, but I'd never read the book. And it's just a perfect dissection of not only the role of, of cars in our world, but also our obsession with them and our unquestioned obsession, the sort of inherent obsession that has underlied at least modern Western civilization of the car and that the logical endpoint, as you say, of the car is the car crash. <laughs> mm -hmm. The car crash is somehow inbuilt into the idea of the car, that car crashes happen so often and, and are so widespread that they're this risk that you take it whenever you step into one. Yeah. There was a quote by Ballard in a short essay that where he said, if we really feared the crash, most of us would be unable to look at a car, let alone drive one. Yeah, it's true. I mean, my husband often says that, that the people who drive 
really don't have an appreciation that we are driving, you know, these one ton trucks of hunking high speed metal mm. that will crush us if we're not paying attention. He definitely, like me, has a fair amount of road rage when we see people doing stupid things or just not abiding by whatever the road rules are for the sake of getting somewhere just a little bit faster or the lack of patience, which is just astounding because, like you say, the massive risks involved when you don't treat it like when you don't respect what it is or what its potential, violent potential is. And and that's, you know, again, linked to our obsession with moving forward faster and faster and almost seeing the car as a symbol of this but then also seeing the road as a symbol of this path that we've almost laid out for ourselves with this system that we've built around this one method of transportation like yes we obviously have railway systems and, and things like that but it's like highways and roads and things and they're just this endless interlinked series of black tar veins all over our countries and it's it's really interesting how that all just ties into each other and yeah especially as you were saying ben with these themes of like modernity and uh, industrialization and and getting somewhere faster (laughs) before you even mentioned crash i was like oh i should have dug out the atrocity exhibition and then i realized it was right beside my head on the bookshelf so i'm trying to flick through it here to find (laughs) a really awesome quote but i can't (laughs) that being jg ballard's earlier quotation marks novel question mark which precursors crash and has some of the same characters in it and he talks about car crashes and the historical moments because you have assassination of jfk Mm -hmm. there's like one of the chapters in here is a homage to abraham zapruder who shot the infamous film of jfk being assassinated and then you have uh the the assassination of uh franz ferdinand is in a car you've got the death of james dean There's all these moments in history Jane that Mansfield. are connected to cars, Jane Mansfield, that shocked Diana, Princess Diana. Diana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's so many connections with cars and death and sexuality and history shifting and moving in different directions. That's on like a large national scale, but the personal scale, one thing that has kind of been lost. And actually, I, I was just going to ask Ben, you don't drive, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> Yeah, so you're the only one here who doesn't drive, which I think we should have stated that earlier on because that frames a lot of your questions and the things that you were saying. <laughs> I mean, a little Maybe. bit. Maybe. You know, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning to drive. But it, it's interesting because I've, I've often I've had this, I have this theory that, that's like people who know how to drive a car, there's at least like that takes up a chunk of your brain. And so that it means that whatever you're doing, even if you're not driving a car, there's like a part of your brain that has the skill to ride it's like riding a bike but it has the skill to know how to ride a car and when you are driving a car you're in a different state of being than when you're not driving a Mm. car i would like to refute that by saying i quite often forget how to operate my car when i think (laughs) if i stop thinking and just let my muscles do it i'm all good so i refute that i think the the part of your body that knows how to drive a car is in the muscles not necessarily the brain right but they're all connected There are so many unconscious parts of the brain. We're not up to mind-body split. That's a future episode. Okay. Yeah, oh, no, let's not tackle that. This is hard enough as it is. (laughs) I wonder if that's because you came to driving a bit later on, Bucks, then, because you've only been driving for, well, how long has it been now? Four years? Three years. Just coming up on three years. Three years. So 
three years driving. It's a little bit a part of how my brain malfunctions. I would definitely give it that. Yeah. A lot of sleep deprivation. <laughs> but in saying that to Ben about driving and changing things, I had never really wanted to drive. The one time I had tried to learn, I just about gave my dad a heart attack and vice versa. Mm. You know, I used to joke that the only way that dad was ever going to get me to drive was if he died and left me his car and he did. And so I did. So now I drive. And ever since I'm like, oh shit, I should have learned to drive when I was a teenager because I would have been a stunt driver. This is rad. (laughs) I love it. I would a hundred percent have become a stunt driver. Then maybe it was a good thing you didn't. Oh, so the way it just glides and moves and flows and you just switch off your brain and just let everything be motion and reaction is quite glorious and I love it. What was that you were talking about, eroticism? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty spectacular, but I, I think that is a big part of it, and it, it, it tie, definitely ties in with the cinema aspect because you know even the way you're seated, you're seated looking at a screen, and the world is framed in a certain way, and you're kind of experiencing you're looking at signals coming at you on how to like interpret and react, and it's obviously more interactive in a physical sense, but a lot of the the sensory experience is very much like that. And I think also that what I was going to say about things have changed quite a bit now, not only in how cars look and feel, but a big part of the development of car culture is when teenagers started to have, when the teenagers started to develop as a concept in the, the 50s and they had a little bit more affordable income and they could afford to buy their own cars, the cost of cars dropped a bit. And so suddenly teenagers who had previously always had to live under their parents' roofs now had their own personal space. They had their own little item, yeah. their own little island, their fiefdom that they could travel around and, you know, make out in or take friends hooning around or whatever, you know, rebel without a cause style. Yeah, and I think that's part of where the obsession comes from is because of that sense of ownership, that sense of as a teenager coming out of the 50s as well, They, it's not like they had control over their home. They didn't have control over the space that they were occupying, but the car... The car that they had or that they, you know, they worked summer jobs for or, you know, worked after school, putting money together, scrimping together, saving up for that upgrade or maybe getting a bit of a bomb of a car and working on weekends and after school and all that kind of stuff to build it up into this whatever their impression of an apex car, that sense of ownership that comes with it and the reflection of the driver or their friends or that group. In relation to cinema, you know, you're on the road and there's cars everywhere. So many people have cars and you're all following the same path and yet it's your car and it's your world. And mm. that reminds me of, you know, cinema. When I don't have this so much now, but, you know, when you're young and you find a film and you're like, this is my film, like this is the film that speaks to me and you could be walking out of the cinema with 300 people and it's still your film. It has that same kind of experience that you experience it in this very like communal but individual way. So I mm. uh, welcome everyone to our podcast about the drive-in. <laughs> I was like, just look at the time. Oh, and I was like, no. it was about 22 minutes before we started talking about actual films. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Now, yeah. I know. I would like to talk about helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> 
wait, wait, wait. Is this the Hobbs and Shaw reference to the car chain that's lifted off the mountain thanks to the helicopter, the Apache helicopter? Because that's the only link I can think of. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't watch that. Though we can get around. It was to... in the trailer. You didn't have to watch it. Please oh, don't watch it. I didn't. I blocked it out. I've got uh, where is it? I've got this great quote. This is actually one of the first things I thought of when we talked about this, and it, it's. I think I hope you'll understand the connection. Actually, it's a really interesting connection because. I've been thinking about the Vietnam War a lot lately, as you do. I read some stuff that was talking about, like, the Vietnam War was the rock and roll, the first rock and roll war and how much the sound of the music and everything was tied in with the experience of Nam, which reminds me of what you were saying earlier, Steph, like, they're talking about the music, like, even in Hit and Run, when Dax Shepard goes to make his car film, the main thing he spent money on was getting those songs, exactly the kind of songs mm. that they were listening through that through that era, that this rock and roll engines roaring metal grinding kind of connection that fuels into each other there's a amazing book by michael her called dispatches which is his uh, sort of personal account of being a journalist in vietnam if i remember correctly i always this is like one of those quotes that always stuck in my head in the months after i got back the hundreds of helicopters i'd flown in began to draw together until they'd formed a collective meta chopper and in my mind, it was the sexiest thing going. Saver, destroyer, provider, waster, right hand, left hand, nimble, fluent, canny and human. Hot steel, grease, jungle-saturated canvas webbing, sweat cooling and warming up again. Cassette rock and roll in one ear and door gun fire in the other. Fuel, heat, vitality and death. Death itself, hardly an intruder. He could be talking about the cars. <laughs> yeah sure that's crash and yeah river without a cause and two lane blacktop it's that same kind of that how in cinema the cars represent all of those things there's like even even when a car is a villain it still has like all these extra layers of meaning that ties into all of these aspects of our experience of it and like you were saying before ben that bound up in the car is the idea of the crash and death and like the sexuality of it and then but also the freedom of it and the hope i was gonna say it's, it's, yeah. it's all in one. The way her describes the helicopters and the experience of them in Nam is like a just like focused in version of it of cars and in air. <laughs> Interesting how I mean helicopters aren't you know mass means of transportation by any means, <laughs> um, but that but the car is so. I mean, you don't have one in the backyard because I I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Bronwyn Bishop. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm daughter of an oil baron, didn't you know? I've got a, I've got all sorts. Uh, here I was having having a, some knives in the kitchen drawer and thinking those were my choppers. <laughs> but it, it's it, it's interesting how it, it, it's such a yeah, it's like a, such a ubiquitous part of modern yeah. Western life. And, and how it does combine all this control, this freedom, this in, almost individual aspect, but then also this death and this horror and depersonalized just metal, you know, and, and as you were saying, it's like mass produced metal sculptures if we want to call them that we call them movement sculptures now, Ben we, we call them movement, movement sculptures, sculptures. Well, all right, they're movement sculptures but but they're they're mass produced and yet they still somehow are meant to embody this sense of individual ownership, which I think is yeah. such a testament to the lies of uh, of modern Western capitalist culture. Uh, it, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a great quote that I found. This is uh, 
omnipresent everyday objects that serve as blank canvases onto which filmmakers can impose their meaning, plus they're symbolically versatile, which I thought was very apt when I started trying to put some thoughts together for this because I just kept coming up with theme after theme after theme of, of links between these kinds of car films that came to mind. My refutation of your statement once again, Ben, would uh, be Tulane Blacktop. Uh-huh. Because mm. I think that that film specifically sets off the, the dichotomy of the shop-bought versus the personalised. Admittedly, okay, yeah. the personalised is kind of annihilating Strict. in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> For the, those who haven't seen Tulane Blacktop, uh, 1970? I should know yeah. because something like that. I, 1970, 1971. There you go. Yeah, something the because like it was finished. It was finished earlier and released later. Um, Monty Hellman, one of the few truly existentialist directors to come out of America, had worked with Roger Corman on the tail end. Uh, on, the, on the back of Easy Rider's success, Universal gave I think five directors a heap of money and told them, "Go do your Easy Rider, make it happen again." Which you know, that always works out really well. Mm. Tulane Blacktop definitely went and did its own thing. It's a far superior film to Easy Rider. Even in, even if you love Easy Rider, I think it, it's just a better film. Strange cast, James Taylor and Dennis Wilson play uh, mechanic and driver. That is how they're referred to exclusively, which, as I said, in the annihilating aspect, they are completely reduced to nothing more than a driver and a mechanic. And they're tooling across America in their stripped-down 1955 Chevy, and they have stripped it down totally. It barely has seats. There's no heating. There's no music. It's just tiny, like, stripped-back steering wheel. Everything is stripped back to get maximum power-to-weight ratio. And all they do is travel and work on it and race, and they are nothing more. And alongside them turns up Warren Oates playing a character who's only referred to as GTO because he drives a 1970 Pontiac GTO. And he is an older man who's burnt out in his life and is running away from whatever emptiness chases him. And he is nothing more than made up stories and lies as if he's bought them from the shop, just like the car. What do you say, Ben? I refute it because I think that, that they're definitely those two possibilities, but they get really, really complicated because this film kind of lays them out but it doesn't let either of them be positive or negative. Yeah, because I think what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing there is it's still set in conjunction with, with society as a whole, and what they've done to their experience of the car is still uh, created almost to the side of or still in a way within the general social construct of riding a car and owning a car um, and being within this being within a society but attempting to live by their own rules and kind of I would say what you were saying about you know stripping it back to its bare essentials just steel and speed it's like having having no life outside of that seems like they live to drive and that's it and and it echoes to me at least certain working class experiences even middle class experiences of getting up going to work going home and going to sleep and yet also when you attempt to perhaps alienate yourself from society you still end up alienated whoa (laughs) (laughs) heavy truths there dropping the heavy existentialist truths yeah you're definitely right it is 
the thought I had in thinking about this, because I was thinking about Rebel Without a Cause, uh, I, even though it doesn't actually feature much car stuff in it, that's kind of the, still the, the film I go back to for myself when I think about 50s car slash teen rebel films. The cars in that, the, the, the one scene is not very positive. Like it ends with a death. It's, there's just like competition and negativity. Thinking about Tulane Blacktop like that, it's like the end of that thought process, the end of that road like arrested development that they're so locked into this car culture that they can only reach the limits of the car right and that there's nothing further beyond that it kind of reminds me of film made around this made around the same time with a really similar theme vanishing point which is essentially just one person getting into a car and driving to escape what we don't know the man his life the man, <laughs> his entire mode of being is switched into running, driving away, and that's it. He's driving away from, and that's the, the symbol upon which this film is built. And I, I really love that film for what it, how, how much it mines that concept. Have you seen Figures in a Landscape, the Joseph Losey film? No, I haven't. I've been wanting to see it for years. It's basically that, but with a helicopter. Uh, we're talking about cars talk here. About Sorry, it's cars. Why it's... didn't you ask for that to be the theme instead of cars? Because I wouldn't have been on the episode if he had. Uh... <laughs> episode 4.5. I just bring that up because it's an e- being Joseph Losey, it's an even more stripped back version of that. That it's just two men trapped in a desert running from a helicopter that keeps following them, and that's it. <laughs> that sounds like, um, what was that other movie? Um... Does it have a helicopter? The the one Predator. The, no, with the car. Oh. The car following them. Is it just called the car? The Satan car with um Papa Brolin. Yeah? The black yeah. is it black and white? No. The <laughs> I mean the car is Oh, not... I've lost you. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, okay. Moving he's, on. He's like a sheriff in the desert and the car represents Satan, but it is like his oversized monster of thing they specifically made for the film. That's the other thing. Cars and trucks often represent Satan when they're chasing people in yeah. 70s cinema. Mm. Mm. <laughs> there was a, a, a Czech film, which I think you and I both enjoy, Ben, called Ferrat Vampire. There's like a new type of car that's developed which runs on human blood. <sighs> oh, that old gem. I, yeah. I've got to show you Ferret Vampire, Steph. I think you'd enjoy it. It's pretty great. Uh-huh. It's, it's so rich <laughs> with symbolism. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, 80s Czech film made by Uri Hertz, who made um, The Cremator. Uh, I, I did a Projection Booth episode on one of his films recently, Morgiana. So I, I watched a whole heap of them. And it's interesting you bring it up after I talk about cars representing Satan, because when I watched about Vampire, the car is a, uh, is a neutral entity in the film. It's not good or evil it's all of the people around it and how they use it that are the ones who have questionable ethics and morals um, but the way Yuri Hertz has this incredible way of presenting objects with a total neutrality of going no this is the thing that you would normally say is the evil but it's not it's just a tool that people use to create evil in the world like the crematoriums and the cremator turn towards uh, the final solution it's quite a it, the way that he can do that so efficiently and effectively while still making a bizarre political black comedy is a really remarkable. I highly recommend Ferret Vampire. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's interesting that you say uh, cars as as a tool because 
I should have done this as like a bingo uh, sheet because that was one of my themes. I'm not even joking. I've got cars as a tool slash precision weapon or job. And the, the films that kind of came to mind were things like the transporter films, oh, yeah. uh, Baby Driver, of oh, course, yeah. the yep. Italian job as well, arguably in the various reimaginations of it. And uh, some of the, not the original trilogy, but some of the later Fast and Furious films where they're very much used as, you know, precision tools for getting whatever wacky job needs to get completed. And that in the wrong hands, they are weapons of mass destruction and chaos and death and violence. But in the hands of the right people with capable, calm, cool minds <laughs> at the wheel are incredible tools said completely unironically <laughs> there's then the the entire genre of like car racing films and like drag racing and absolutely and formula ding racing. ding ding that's another of my uh thing goes there thank <laughs> yeah, you yeah because that that's almost like uh, taking that and stripping back to its its one function it's like what is the one function of a car to go fast okay let's just do that yeah for a job i think it's more than that and i would like to quote from leo mark from his essay, The Pilot and the Passenger, where he said, In America, machines were preeminently conquerors of nature, nature conceived mm. as space. They blazed across a raw landscape of wilderness and farm. So in that context of the bingo points that we just discussed, mm -hmm. the man is conquering the machine that is conquering nature. Mm. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. So it's all those big dick energy films. <laughs> oh yeah i mean there there's there's a lot of them uh i've been told that i have big dick energy <laughs> that is a that is a confession of mine so uh this is my redneck showing um <laughs> and, and yet it's it's when people have flashy large cars that people specifically say that they're compensating for something they're not conquering space just by owning it they need to conquer space by, you know, like flipping the car through the air to knock a bomb off of the bottom of it on a crane and still <laughs> land it. That's yes. big dick energy. That's so where do, the, where do buses well... come, uh, speaking of bombs, where do buses come into it? Oh, I knew it. Oh, I knew wait. that was coming. I thought that's where, uh, Bucks, I thought that's where you were starting because you said speed. I'm like, oh, is that it? Are we starting with speed? Oh, see, you, you thought of. I no, I didn't even think of speed. I thought of what is it like super van? What's the what's the weird bus film from the seventies? <laughs> what? <laughs> this is like a perfect summation of what it is to be Ben Buckingham. Oh, let's think of a thing where, where it's like things are moving at a high speed and there's a bomb. Oh yeah, speed. I know, super van. <laughs> Well, I can't speak to what Supervan is about. I've only got it on video and never watched it because it looks awful. Is that actually a film? Yeah, it's just yeah. called Supervan. I, 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 I oh, don't God. know. I'm, okay. Yeah. But there is a film from 1976 called The Big Bus. The first bus that runs on <laughs> nuclear energy embarks on its disaster-ridden maiden journey from New York to Denver. A mysterious organization with links to the oil lobby is determined that the trip goes wrong in every way imaginable. Comedy parody, according to Wikipedia. Thank you again, Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, the big bus, the, the bus entry in the disaster film subgenre of the 70s. And the only one, apparently, <laughs> that comes to mind. Until Speed. You could say that Speed is a disaster film. <laughs> well, you can say it's a lot of things, but you could say it's a rom-com. <laughs> is it a helicopter movie? Are there helicopters in it? I don't think so. Does it have to have a, a helicopter in it? You can be a helicopter mum without being a helicopter. Helicopter parent. Sorry, I won't oh, pretend to specific. Okay, no. Okay, right. okay, okay. Back, back, back to the track. 
The racetrack. Um, the racetrack, exactly. Um, damn it, I was going to say something, but I've completely been derailed by that now. <laughs> Debust, even. Um, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, can I drop another wanky qu- quote? Sure. Yay. Let's see what it triggers. Go on. So this is from one of my absolute favorite books, uh, Robert Romanishan's Technology as Symptom and Dream. I love this quote. The enactment of the human imagination in technology is the enactment of the human imagination in the world. In building a technological world, we create ourselves, and through the events which comprise this world, we enact and live out our experiences of awe and wonder, our fantasies of service and of control, our images of exploration and destruction, our dreams of hope and nightmares of despair. So, David Cronenberg's Crash, 1997. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Do you want to explain what Crash is, Ben? Because, yeah, because I, I, I feel like not many people have seen it in 20 years. I mean, I... I haven't seen it, so... It, I saw it, I can't remember, maybe 10, 8 years ago. Anyway, so Crash is a film by David Cronenberg. It was based on a book by J.G. Ballard, also called Crash. The book was written in the mid-70s, whereas the film was made in the mid-90s. Broadly speaking, it's about our obsession with cars and death and sex all intermingled into one obscene in the best of ways exploration of these themes it centers around a group of people who come together almost in a cult-like way to go through car accidents and turn it into a sexual thing (laughs) that's possibly the the quickest way to summarize this i believe it starts when a young professional gets into a car accident and through the car accident meets this other person who's completely gone down the rabbit hole of car crashes and car deaths and injuries and is chronicling them, but it all becomes very, very erotic and sexual and starts blending the ways in which technology and humanity cross over. David Cronenberg has always been one to examine themes of technology and humanity and the boundaries of humanity in in relation to what's around us um, and what's within us and i think crash is one of the best distillations of all of these themes that he's been able to put to screen because it stars james spader as the young man who goes on this journey yeah okay yeah there was a, a, a an article i was um starting to read about the film that called james spader like the the personification of 90s yuppiehood. <laughs> At that time? Yeah, yeah he probably yeah, yeah. was. And then where he went afterwards probably Pretty still same, makes yeah. that inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, it makes it, especially with the sort of the, the fetishization that you're kind of talking about still kind of holds true yeah, for him. Yeah, I mean, he kind of plays that character in Wolf, uh... And also, what was it, Secretary? I was going to say Secretary yeah. is what I was thinking of, yeah. And, it, like, you could even... He does pass through a uh, portal in Stargate. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, the uh, Yeah, I, I remember reading about Crash in Fangoria and being a diehard Cronenberg fan since I was way too young. <sighs> so hanging out to see it. The local video store guy knew that my mum was okay with me getting pretty much anything and Crash came out and the one thing the mum wasn't really okay with was like sex, really intense sex stuff. 
and I went to get crashed and I brought up and he's like, no, I'm going to need your mum's permission for that. And I was like, oh. So I we tried to get my mum to say yes and she was like, no. Hmm. And rightly so. So it took me years to see it. Because <laughs> I think I was pretty fucked up. I would have been 13 or so. It's pretty fucked up, yeah. But um, it infamously had a rather large uh, run-in with Ted Turner at the time who owned, was it CNN, Time Warner or whatever, and f- helped fund it and then found out what he paid for and had this massive public freak out and called it filth and blocked its uh, wider release. And so, yeah, that's why I said it hasn't been readily available for a number of years. And, yeah, they've, I know it's, they've just done a 4K restoration, which I'm dying to get a copy of. Well, the same thing happened to the book. They pretty much didn't want to publish it in America because they thought it was obscene. And then in the UK, there was a whole furore about publishing it as well. Yeah, there was a lot of talk of people going to trying to imitate it by having sex and car accidents and all that dumb stuff that the censors always bang on about. When I tried to write that terrible essay on the fly and Crash and Death Proof, I was tackling Bataille, Jörg Bataille, when doing it. It really connects with Crash very heavily. So the connections between eroticism and life and death. We've got another good quote here. Between one being and another, there is a gulf, a discontinuity. Uh, and that in death you get, death means the continuity of being. So you return back into the disconnect. Let me start again. The life is the discontinuity and the death is the continuity. And in sex with the petite mort, you have the, the little death and you get the moment in which two can join together and become a continuity again. And to me, Crash was the embodiment of those technological dreams and fantasies and bodies and death and life. And the car crash itself is a form of unity. Because you've got the, the twisting metal combining, locking into each other the same way as you do in sex. And then, of course, the body locking into the car and being com- combined with that. So you end up with these layers of connection. And it breaks down the isolation and loneliness and disconnection of modernity and urban living. That's intense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Very intense. Sorry, that's intense. I've never, I haven't heard this uh, analogy explanation. So, yeah, that's very intense. Looking at car crashes from that perspective, it's like, well, yeah, actually, crash is inevitable to move into, not necessarily to want to have sex with broken cars and things like that, but the concept of them all welding together and connecting and fusing is, yeah, weirdly inevitable. I was going to say that it it, it reminds me of, or not reminds me, it recalls the idea of, of change and the way that these technologies end up changing who we are and changing our bodies and the way that the way that the injuries from car accidents on on the various characters' bodies become intensely eroticized, uh, and the way that they eventually can only they can only get turned on by touching their injuries and scars and the various ways in which their bodies have been altered by by the car crashes is uh, really evocative. The way that these technologies that we've built for ourselves these systems kind of you know, as you say, they're inevitable that they will in some way affect us and alter us. And these injuries then become those representations of the lasting marks on us uh, of these of these changes and of these systems. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Ben, because as Robert Ramanishan wrote... 
films are <laughs> films are cultural daydreams, and in each of these films, he's talking about the thing, Alien, and the Fly. In each of these films, our culture is inventing and dreaming new ways of remaking the body and expressing its underlying concerns about this power of creation. Cool. Yep. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yep. <laughs> Make it a little bit more local. I don't want to talk about it too long because it seems to come up pretty regularly. Mad Max, especially Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. the way the people have been... I will say that normally in most of these films, especially the previous Mad Max films, the vehicles are shaped and transformed by the people, but then you get to Fury Road and the two forms of transformation seem to have come becoming conjoined so that the people who work with the cars have become more car-like with Furiosa's arm, with the the, the mm. chrome spray onto their face as they die. Yeah, the chrome the, all spray. The, mm-hmm. the armour and face mask that looks like the, you know, the tubes and valves of an engine. Like in Fury Road is this ultimate point at which the transformation has stopped being so one-sided and shifts backwards and starts to shape us as well. Mm. Which I think is consistent very much with the world that the first Mad Max films create. It, it only makes sense to a, a large extent that, that that would happen because the world in Mad Max has been stripped to... The few, you know, the few cars, the the scarcity of petrol oh. and the inevitable fights over resources that that entails just centered around one very central concept, which is the car. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was going to mention the resources and the petrol, in in fact, because yeah. it's, it's such a... Um, <laughs> and the helicopter. <laughs> and the helicopter. <laughs> um, Gyrocopter. <laughs> well, well, you know what it's meant to be. It always reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well and the way that the chainsaw is also powered by petrol. Um, and the fact that that was made during a, during a petrol shortage in, in the United States. Um, oh, right. But, but, and just just the fact that in, in Mad Max, this vi- the vision is that we'll still never have truly gotten over our need to have cars. And the, the fact yeah. that in spite of that, or because of it rather, we still have to have these fights over resources and over over natural resources, essentially. Mm. There's a very interesting con- couple of connections there, and it does tie back to the origins of the car in the horse. That I think you know the the Western. We even talk about like the the bingo card of talking about a topic, and if you're talking about a Western, <laughs> then you have to talk about horses. Yeah. Yeah. With the horse and Western being so closely bound ties into that frontiers and the conquering of space and the individuality of the hero and manifest destiny and all those kind of ideas. When you move into the future, there's no horses in the Mad Max world. Or if there are, there are very few of them and they barely make an appearance and they certainly never take on a car or stand up to a car. I think that's really significant because we can imagine a world in which we've somehow managed to keep this machine and creation alive that is on runs on limited fuel but we can't keep an animal alive i don't mm. think that's necessarily an environmental thing or anything like that i think it's a very specious thing that we can't imagine keeping something other than ourselves alive and the cars are an extension of us whereas the horses can never truly become a totally subsumed part of us it's still kind of its own mm. being yeah and the- yeah interesting point the the way when you mentioned the westerns and the frontiers, um, it immediately drew a connection with 
the idea of the road movie and the way that that is a, mm. almost like a modernized western in in some respects. I, there's an amazing quote. I wish I I have no idea where it came from. It was something I read eons ago in university and lost. And it was that when Americans look at the road, they see the journey and they see the future. When Australians look at the road, they see another car coming towards them on the wrong side. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. American road movies are a dime a dozen almost. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, again, maybe this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make up bingo cards for every episode we do and I'll see if we can get a bingo by the end. But, um, the, the, the idea of cars as an escape or the, like you said, the cross country, the journey, the travel, you know, the, you know, the concept of that the journey is more important than the destination and how you get there. Um, and the stories that you learn and collect along the way, like you collect souvenirs or novelty lighters or whatever it is that you collect. It's, it's an interesting one because with that, I think inevitably comes that, which we kind of started talking about that sense that cars are a representation of freedoms. Being able to get in the car and just go, leave everything else behind or get, pack everything into the car and go somewhere because there's something on the other side that you want or need is a very human thing, I think. Yeah. I mean, the main road movie is actually what I thought you were going to say because it involves a bus, and I thought you were going to bring up another bus thing. Oh, is that just me doing that? Yeah. Speed? Yeah. <laughs> the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Priscilla? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, Priscilla. That, that embodies yeah. all of those things. It's so much about the journey and the things collected along the way, but also the freedoms and sort of go escaping to somewhere else. And it yeah. does embody those things in, in a way that is very recognisable to American and international road movies, but I think it does bring its own particular Australian and queer angle to it. Yeah, very much. Well, that one I think specifically is sort of more that the, the bus in a way becomes a microcosm of, like you said, that sort of queer world of those those three people and you know while they're traveling to perform they're also traveling to escape uh, you know the repression that they experience in a lot of the places that they would call home mm -hmm. and that most of the stops along the way end up uh repeating that yeah thinking about two lane blacktop like i don't think of two lane blacktop as a road movie because it, it doesn't have a destination and there isn't a point to the travelling other than, as you pointed out earlier, Ben, just to keep moving, uh, yeah. to keep repeating. We don't like to do spoilers here, and it, it, it's, it is about the end of the film, but it's not necessarily a spoiler because the film doesn't exactly have a narrative. <laughs> the way Tulane Blacktop ends is with just another drag race, and as he's tearing along, the film steadily slows down and then pops and melts and burns up on the screen. And it's like in cinema critical theory, it's, it's often considered that a freeze frame ending means that there is no ending, that things have stopped moving so that there is no conclusion, there can be no conclusion. So to view Tulane Blacktop's ending, it not only freezes but then melts away to say that there's just, it's almost like an apocalypse, that there's just absolutely nothing but to just burn out and be gone. Yeah. As in, like, literally, literally, when we say the, the film burns up, it's not that the car burns up, the, literally the frame of the film burns up, which I think was taken from, or at least happened in an earlier car film called The Departure, 
by uh, it was a French film by Polish director um, Jerzy Skolimowski, who made quite a lot of films in different countries. But um, Jean-Pierre Leo was the star of that, and again bringing into that sort of teen films where he was almost the like the teen icon of uh, of 1960s French cinema, uh, and him just becoming obsessed over this one car for for a race. Um, and then I th- I'm pretty sure um, it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure that that film also ends with um, like a, an open ending symbolized by a, the film itself burning up or getting scratched up or something like that. Yeah. And it just, the, the similarity struck me really hard. In talking about the freeze frame ending that Liard is one of the figures of the most famous freeze frame endings at the end of 400 blows when it freezes on his oh, yeah. young face as a boy and that's quite off the example that's used to demonstrate this concept and theory so you could all you could look at the departure as being what do we do with this person who is most famous for being freeze framed he, he what's the step beyond that to annihilate mm. and melting the film altogether yeah absolutely I wonder if that that concept of the disintegration and the sort of the freezing of time insinuating that their lives continue unchanged like they they repeat these patterns knowingly or unknowingly perpetuating the same travel you know forward motion but with no destination in mind is kind of i wonder if it kind of overtly or accidentally reflects that car culture continues from generation to generation it's the kind of thing that does and can be handed down from one generation to the next we've had the car since you know they're early, very early 1900s or the late 1800s, actually. But in the modern sense, we've had the car since the early 1900s. And the obsession is alive and well and continues to, to now to where we are and will inevitably continue as we get to whatever comes in the future, whether that's truly driverless cars, not really sure, or if it's, I mean... I don't want to say it, but if we get there, space travel or, you know, anything like that, it's, I think that it's one of those perpetual truths of humans for whatever reason. Well, actually, the funny, that makes me think of uh, a couple of films from the 80s, like The Last Starfighter. Have you either oh, seen yeah. The Last Starfighter? I think. No. I think I've seen clips in reference to things. It's one of those very Spielbergian 80s young adult yeah. films and it's a you know young man who lives in a caravan park which is <laughs> frozen vehicles and going nowhere, has Literally, to be there with yeah. his single mum, that kind of thing, looks after his little brother, I think, and he just spends all these days playing this Last Starfighter arcade machine. Then it turns out that this machine has been sent to all the places in the universe by this planet that's been war waged against it and is nearly destroyed and it's a recruiting machine to bring them to the greatest of the starfighters to come and help them fight the evil empire and so he gets to live out his dream of flying his own starfighter and it just made me think of that of that it's that's kind of the sci-fi 80s amped up childhood Mm. dream version instead of getting his like souped up hot rod after playing the arcade machine he gets his souped up space car space vehicle (laughs) well the 80s film that we haven't talked about that heavily features a car, of course, are the Back to the Future films, which I almost oh. wanted to touch on when we were talking about the Western, because at least the third one <laughs> attempts to amalgamate those two in a very odd way. Ironically, the one in which the car doesn't work most. <laughs> exactly. And sits 
off screen, but you know it's there. It has to be powered by the weird uh, train. The train, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering if we could get through the whole episode without mentioning Back to the Future. <laughs> no, not going to happen. It's another of my bingos, iconic cars, and that was it. I know which film I want to get to the end of without mentioning. Um, oh. oh, I want to try and figure out what it is. <laughs> but yeah, Back to the Future is a great example. And actually, it was funny because I've been talking before about the shaping cars and cars shaping us. I thought of Transformers. Yes. Yep, that's on my list too. We imagine Transformers, we imagine them turning into us as if humanoid is the best version. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's that very selfish, yeah. self-centered 80s vision of the world that we see still living in the nostalgia for it. Well, with the exception of the, um, what were they called? The ones that turn into dinosaurs? Jurassic Park. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the cars. Sorry. The cars that turn into uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> Dinobots? Dinobots. That sounds Are they right. Dinobots? Yeah. Is that what they that were? Yeah, right. yeah. I had, Which I like is the, ironic because like the they're run on fossil fuels. Okay, continue. Exactly. I think <laughs> they're fusion powered, actually. Oh, whatever. <laughs> well, technically, they're their own race, so I don't think they're any of those all right, things. All right, all let's, right, all let's, right. Let's derail the whole podcast for at least 10 minutes trying to figure out what Transformers yeah. run on based on my memories of watching it 30 years ago. Yeah, and my experience of the contemporary films. So hang on, if they're their own race, how come they so so easily mimic human objects? Exactly. Or do they just do it because we are so simple that we need something that looks like us to be able to be friends with it? And so they imitate us I in order so. to They can do only that. transform into one thing, right? We don't know maybe. that. Maybe they tell us that to make us feel comfortable. Or maybe, yeah, maybe when they came here, they were like... Um, Worms. Yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe they were one thing, but if they went to a different planet and there was a different life form there, they would have imitated that in their first instance and they would have all looked like that. Yeah. Aardvark bots. Yeah. All right. Now we're really off the <laughs> off the track here. In regards to Back to the Future, do we think the choice of the car had anything to do with the cocaine-fueled madness of its creator? <laughs> yep. Yeah, you reckon that's part sure. of why they chose it? I think it was just because, honestly, it was the most 80s-looking car <laughs> that they could get their hands so on, and they yes. were like, this is going to be the style for the future. Yeah, exactly. It is cooking. It's a yes, then, because only the cocaine fueled <laughs> madness of... What was Tom DeLorean? Steve DeLorean? No, no. Um, I I'll look it up, yeah. but... It's not Tom, I don't think. <laughs> Something like that. Um, yeah, he was a total loon. He's really nuts. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like uh-huh. like FBI drug deals and all sorts of shenanigans. Okay. John DeLorean. John DeLorean. He was absolutely batshit. John DeLorean. Uh, John DeLorean was also the guy who created the muscle car. So he's actually this incredibly important figure in everything that we're talking yeah. about. Like without the muscle cars, a lot of these seventies car films just wouldn't be the same. Mm. Yeah, he worked on the GTO Pontiac, uh, the Firebird, all sorts of things, which were the, the. I think it was Ford, wasn't it? Because they like they were the, all the old grey dudes running the company, and they were like, "No, we only make family cars for driving the family to the yeah. park and back on weekends, and that's it." And he just ignored them and made this nutso car with this ridiculous engine, and just like snuck it past them and got it on got got it into production because they were so like out of touch, they didn't even know what was going on in their own company, and managed to get the muscle car out. And it had already become such a huge hit with people that they were like, oh, shit, okay, yeah, give him all the money. Yeah. Huh. And then he squandered it oh, all. Oh, so much drugs. The That's really funny, though, because <laughs> to, to double back a bit to being talking about films like Vanishing Point and Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry and Tulane Blacktop, that 
these films, they come out of the combination of like the rebel without a cause, the easy rider. So they're very ingrained into them is the idea of rebelling and fighting the man Mm. and the system and going against normality. And even the cars, the origin of the cars come from that origin of, of going against what the boss wanted and what the boss thought was acceptable of what society thought was acceptable. So the films, even though the films may not have been created with that in mind, the cars and the narratives and the characters all become this like a collective of this cultural dream of freedom and rebellion against uh, the system and the man, which is quite fascinating. And see, there I thought you were going to go into Dukes of Hazard because you said boss, you said rebellion. <laughs> I, I've, I've not, I've only seen the remake. Uh, I'll see myself to the door now. Oh, I meant the TV show as much as the film. But Ben, how was Smoking the Bandit? Yeah, speaking of which, I was going to say, um, I just watched Smoking and the Bandit this afternoon, and it has a little Confederate flag sticker on the car. <gasps> Which you I don't like, say. Oh, yes, it does. Uh, interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, it's all, problematic. It's all set in in the South, and the the uh, main villain of the film is is this like incredibly incredibly terrible Texas sheriff, and he's definitely painted to be this uh, loony buffoon kind of character with intensely bigoted views. But having said that, the hero of the film uh, has a Confederate flag on his on his car. So I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't really get get down to uh, picking apart the symbolism in that film. It was it was pretty much just a, a dumb car chase film. The car that, is it's, was... it's no, it's Dukes of Hazard. Is the cars called the the general, isn't it? Yes, oh, yeah. Dukes of Hazard, the general. The general. I think I think at some yeah, that's right. Generally, yeah, yeah that's Buster Keaton with the general. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, n- another sort of car <laughs> train. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll retitle this planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> there we go. When we when we get the time yeah. machine, as discussed in the first episode, we go back, we get Buster Keaton, we remake the general with a helicopter. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. At some point, I'd love to do a um, hick exploitation episode, and we definitely need to find somebody who will stand up and say they're a hick and a cinema fan, and will tell us all about these strange oh. things. I definitely yeah. probably know one or two people who could probably fit that bill. But yeah, I love exploitation. <laughs> it's a fucking wild, weird genre. Oh, pretty um, Eddie. I still haven't seen people Pretty Eddie. Uh, it's no. terrific. I was rewatching a bit of um, was it Macon County Line recently with Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, oh, that's a gut punch of a film. I just, oh, when Tommy Lee Jones is, is, like says, I was born dead. And it's just like, oh, God, have my babies. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> interesting. Born babies. Um, but it, it's interesting what, what you were talking about with in terms of, like, you know, going away from the system and freedom to be from the system when, you know, as before we were talking about how it's representative of, of the system and of modernity and, of you know, mass uh, individual transport and, you know, roads being such a, a sprawling element of our society, I guess, um, for lack of mm. a better word. It's so interesting how those themes just like fizz around each other. I'm surprised we have mentioned it in passing in relation to helicopters, the industrial war complex as represented through cars in Fast and the Furious. <laughs> oh, yes. What about it? Let's go. <laughs> That's pretty much it. It's just, it's just a... Okay, you just wanted to dig... Ben, you should watch them sometime. You'll hate them. It'll be great to talk about. Yeah, you will. 
I'm, I'm all. I, 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 I honestly, I don't get the idea of watching stuff <laughs> because I'll hate it. I, I have so. No, me too. There's so many things that I want to watch, and there's there's a finite amount of minutes in my life, and I will not spend them sitting down to watch something that I know that I loathe. Fair enough. <laughs> We talked a bit about the individual's experience through the helicopter of war, but from the other side of it, war is this massive industrial factory that creates all this machinery and technology and then unleashes it upon the world. Couldn't help but think about Fast and the Furious like that, that those films have been steadily moving from the DIY person just like stealing DVDs and drag racing to being transformed into these uber mensch for the u.s government's black ops with ultimate technology machinery but they're still bound to it like they can't do anything without their cars they even have to like jump out of planes with their cars even though it'd be easier to do anything else they're so tied to it and then on top of that they're bound into this huge industrial system that is just completely about domination and destruction and america fuck yeah yeah i think the the original three were very much like we said earlier were the sort of representations of cars as tools and how people who have the respect and knowledge and skill to operate them can use them for very unique problems shall we say whereas the later ones unfortunately go the flip opposite way where they sort of have to kind of figure out a way to make the car relevant again to the point that the most recent version like you say is more or less a weird black ops kind of corporate war film that's apparently not overt but apparently we're just not supposed to notice that a car has gone through a a major high-rise building and is falling from the 70th floor or that it's holding down a apache helicopter with six (laughs) hot rod trucks off of a uh, an island that looks like it could be Hawaii or something like that. Apparently, we're not supposed to notice. <laughs> I hate quoting Nolan films, but it's so true that they live long enough to see yourself become the bad guy that they do become go from oh, being the yeah. underdog heroes to suddenly they're like uber totally. rich and working for the man. And it's just that the the classical journey of the American hero being tainted beyond yeah. belief. No, no, no. As as the film's gone on, they've diverted further and further from their original, like if you want to say their purity or their sort of original <laughs> truth, which is very, I will say, because I, I did enjoy the original films at least, that it was a very simple, pure, distilled concept, which, you know, simply was that this was a group of people that their cars were a representation of everything. They were their laughs, their loves, their losses, you know, all wrapped up into one singular, you know, object, which is a kind of beautiful sentiment. And it's become something incredibly hideous. It's gone from being a blue-collar crims to white-collar crims. Yeah, I can, I can yeah. kind of cheer the blue collars on, but not so much now they're that. And also the, the weird dichotomy that we've been talking about over and over again with cars is still present in really interesting ways because one of the dichotomies is, that even though these films are so reliant on technology, they're also very technophobic. They're all about these super yeah. weapons and super machines and super whatever technology that can just destroy everything or undo everything, and yet they still have to use technology all the time to overcome it and stop it. And there's just they can, they can never actually come to terms with that other than being, oh, well, our cars are muscle cars, so they're analogue, yo. 
And that's about it. So then it becomes analog versus digital, which actually I'll use this to tie back into something you brought up earlier, Steph, being hit and run. Mm. One of the things I found really interesting about the evolution of the car film is that it's one of the main sites in American cinema in which the push for the real has been quite strong Mm. that against CGI. Like physical stunts and stuff like that. To be real stunts, real cars, real drivers, more than almost any other genre or subgenre. In Hit and Run, the reality of his cars and his world is like another layer of that realism. Yeah, well, he drove. He did the stunts. There was no budget for a stunt driver, so it was him. There's two films that do like a dual layered of reality, and one of them is Hit and Run with all that kind of realness of his life, but also Death Proof. Because Death Proof yeah. uses real film stock, which then Tarantino went and took the print and like walked on it in dirt and gravel to give it the scratches and marks like a grindhouse film would have. So there's like a layer of reality in Death Proof with the real stunts and then the real tactile film with the real damage. Yeah, sure. I will say, considering we're talking about a lot of different tropes, obviously, in relation to cars, and I do think Hit and Run like I said, I, I recently rewatched it, so it is fresh in my mind, is a sort of anti-car film in a way. And the reason why I say that is because, as with most people, I think when you think of a car film, the first thing you think of, which, Ben, I think you kind of alluded to early on, was, you know, that guy, <laughs> that peacocking with the fancy souped-up car who is, you know, overcompensating for something. You know, that that kind of symbolism, which in some of the most beloved car films is used in different ways and is distilled into different things. But what I really liked about Hit and Run and the way that I kind of sold it to uh, my husband before showing it to him, because I didn't want to tell him anything about it. I just said, it's a car film. It's ostensibly them getting from point A to point B and things happen along the way. But after watching it with kind of fresh eyes and thinking in preparation for this, this episode, it's really addressing some of those key perceptions and trying to not necessarily dismantle them, though I think it does that, but it definitely is attempting to identify them and to bring light on them. For example, when they when they first start to get on the road, so they're in the Lincoln Continental, this, you know, big black beast, and she says his girlfriend of a year, and she's never seen the car before, and she's like, so... This is that, like we've said, big dick energy. Like, this is a statement car. And he says, what are you talking about? You know, this is just the car that I built with my dad over the years. And I had very specific needs. And then he prattles off the reason that he wanted it was because the boot space was huge, because the car is huge. It has the right amount of this, this, that. And he rattles off all of these facts about the shape and the size of the car. And she goes, okay. You know, she just kind of accepts it that he's gotten a reason for it. And then... The first couple of scenes that they're in public with anybody else, he has people, men specifically, who without asking come up to the car and will do things. There's a guy eating an ice cream and Dax Shepard's characters, you know, trying to like ostensibly move him away from the car because, you know, it's a special car, classic car. Don't drip, you know, your ice cream. And he immediately starts asking very intrusive questions about, you know, oh, what, you know, what, what is it dry? You know, what has it got? What's under the hood and all that kind of stuff. I think he asks whether there's Nas in the car and his Dax's response is to say something along the lines of no, because Nas is for pussies. It's got horsepower. 
and then, you know, walks away. Oh, sorry, no, it was not pussies. It was fags, actually, which then leads into a discussion from Kristen Bell about why he used such a derisive term. And then they slowly sort of unpack that. There's a couple of different scenes where they do that, where they identify that car culture as having those negative aspects and shining a light on why they exist, what it brings out in people, and helping him to mature in a way and realize that this is not the end-all, be-all. And that's my rant about Hit and Run. (laughs) (laughs) I think his background actually probably speaks a lot to that in... Absolutely. Was he a father a racer? Was that it? Uh, no, it was a stepfather. His um, He had several stepfathers, but when he was a early teenager, actually his mother worked as a cleaner for Ford or something like that, and then one of her partners at one point was a, was a driver, and he spent time working on that, and then he got into racing himself. He was a Corvette, I think it was, or a Chevy maybe. And yeah, he, he raced for a bit in his youth as well. But he also, um, he was a racing car photographer, wasn't he? Uh, that was the mom. She was a journalist at one point that was going around to different racetracks and, and taking photos and things. I might be completely wrong, but I have a feeling he did some photography of races as well at the time. That aspect in it does speak more to being an observer as well as a person within the community. And so it makes sense that when he makes the film, he's not just being like, yeah, look at my cars. It's more like, yeah, look at my cars. But there's also all these other things going on in this kind of culture and sphere. And there's a bit more of a a questioning there. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen Hit and Run, but I remember I really enjoyed it. And part of my love for it is one of the, you know, there's lots of reasons to love a film of good quality, intelligent reasons. And then there's sometimes there's just things that are in it that you know you're never going to see anywhere else again. And it's just a reason to love it. And Steph, you know exactly what I'm going to talk about here. And that is Bradley Cooper is channeling Angelina Jolie from Gone in 60 Seconds yeah. with the white dreads yeah. and all. And it is... White dreads. It's yeah. really weird. It's really kind of wrong. There's a lot not good about what he's doing in that film. And yet it's still like, oh, this is happening. Cool. I'm here for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, there's a lot of it's it's an interesting film because I think actually it's really more of an examination of characters and relationships as well and how we communicate with other people and that's why I like it and why I say it's a sort of anti-car film because it unlike something like The Fast and the Furious which is all about trying to get any you know viewer and the masses to have an appreciation for a car for the run of an engine this is going the other way where it's saying. No, these are these are things that are part of our world, but they're also not the end all be all and there's other ways to connect with people than assuming that you can walk up to a guy with a fancy car and say, Hey, what are you running under that under that hood? you know? Uh, when you were talking about bringing up Vietnam and the sort of experiences and the systems and complex military industrial complexes and things like that, um the the film that sprang to mind was Taxi Driver. Which to me is, is uh, one of yeah. the Damn it. <laughs> is that what you were gonna say? I thought that was the film we were not gonna oh, talk really? about. I'm fine, talk- I'm fine with talking about Taxi Driver. Uh, see, and Damn it. Be, okay, it's my also, film that I don't want to talk about. That's also an example of a film that you can separate uh, less so the, the art from the problems, but the art with the problems of its fan base. But <laughs> uh, it's you know, to to me it, it's I mean, it might be a cliche, but it's like one of the best depictions of the Vietnam War on screen, even though it's never actually shown on screen in that 
the main character, Travis Bickle, is a Vietnam vet, which is mentioned very briefly yeah. in the beginning of the film. And the way that, you know, some of these themes that we've been discussing have come into this film about uh, almost like ownership and control, where it's his taxi, it's his car, and yet it still belongs to the taxi company. Mm. He He makes it his own kind of world and his own fantasy and all while being essentially, you know, a member of the forgotten classes of, of society. Yeah, really fascinating. You know, obviously, all the violence that it ends up happening, uh, I suppose, through the processes of, of alienation, of disenfranchisement, of being forgotten. And all the while, I mean, not forgetting that Travis Bickle, while he is also all of these things, is also just a complete loser either through no fault of his own or through every fault of his own. He's also a complete loser, um, which is why it's funny when people try and think that he's cool or imitate him or whatever. He's depicted as 100% loser in this film. Um, and it's because he's lost everything, I suppose, including his mind. To, to extend what you're talking about a little bit further, not as only does he not own the taxi, he's also not directing his direction. He is mm. under the control of the, the the passengers who tell him where to go, which is very much the experience of in Vietnam, where you're told where to go by the generals and colonels, and you you know it's, it's everything is like you're on your own out there, but you still have a mission. And right. he is constantly reliving these kind of little inter immediate missions where he doesn't have to decide what direction he's traveling or where he's going, and that connected with I've been rewatching Hannibal. And they talk about psychic driving in there. And then when you were talking, that was the first thing that came to my mind. The taxi driver, it's like, it's like psychic driving where he's mm. being directed by all of these other influences and things. And has never, he never, you know, much like Mersault um, and Camus, the outsider, like he never really makes decisions on his own. Everything seems to just happen and flow into the next thing. Another famous car crash uh, victim there, Camus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Steph, do you want to briefly talk about your Scorsese well, rage? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. For for the viewers at home, uh, the reason why I don't like Taxi Driver is that I, I would say that I never really had an opportunity to like it. I did a subject at university. Um, I studied cinema as one of my degrees. One subject I did was a genre subject. And little did I know when I signed up, I thought, genre? Okay, so I'll get lots of different, you know, lots of different genres. You did. Little did you I know that it was of, a... Lots of genres. Shush. <laughs> it was a love letter to Scorsese in that every week was a different Scorsese oh, film no. representing through a different genre. Oh. And Taxi Driver was the first week. So in addition to having to do Taxi Driver the first week, we subsequently then every... I think it was the first six weeks we had to do a close analysis of 20 minutes of the film, working our way through the film. And then our uh, one of the three main essays I think that we had to do was a close analysis of a scene in Taxi Driver as well. So it, I mean, I, I can't say that it was a film that I would have enjoyed having just seen it once. I can't know that, but having being forced to, uh, to investigate it and pull it apart and have it brought up almost with, shocking regularity with every single conversation <laughs> I have about cinema and film, Taxi Driver pops up. So I will not. I will not engage. It's tragic, really. It's very tragic. Yeah. Which is, it's, the irony is the, the, the absolute 
uh, like the hours and the, the sweat and effort that he puts into preserving cinema and into being such a wealth of knowledge of cinema history and, and all of those yeah. things and the like the immaculate ways in which he crafts his films and all the the emotion yeah, and symbolism have... he puts into it. It's like to have that then distilled into, oh, my God, it's so cool. It's just <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it was. It was it was you know thirteen or sort of you know fourteen fifteen weeks of it just being shoved down my throat, and I I still have a very strong aversion to him. I respect him. I understand people love and adore him, but I I I can't. It's like it's like when you get food poisoning, right? <laughs> you just you can't go back to the shrimp buffet again for 20 years and i don't know how long it's gonna take me because it's already been close to 10 yeah. so we'll see uh, maybe one day you'll be back on board with martin shrimp buffet scorsese oh yeah that's his new name for me <laughs> it's the new name for me um the one thing i wanted to touch on and it's not really necessarily something that will get a lot of discussion but i did want to touch on as one of the topics we hadn't really covered was the idea of of cars as life and mm. i don't mean that necessarily as in life and death i mean it in terms of records of history and achievements and things like that and for example i have written down as one of my um, examples in this group is i recently watched ford versus ferrari uh, which was a biopic, which I found very interesting to watch, as well as, Ben, what was that one? Rush? The Chris Hemsworth formula. Thank you, Rush, which was a fantastic, again, biopic of interesting relationships when it comes to specifically car racing in a professional sense. And, of course, also took the opportunity to rewatch Love the Beast as well, which is a more personal biopic um, on Eric Bana and his time as a, a rally car driver, which I will just say very randomly, having watched that again now, so the first time I watched Love the Beast, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think I'd only been in Australia for a few years because it, it came out two years, I think, or maybe three years into me living here. And I watched it and I enjoyed it. Having watched it again almost, you know, six or seven years after and watching it again and then realizing that what's his name? That that guy that guy who like presents every single Australian TV show, every new Australian TV show was also a rally car racer and does like a one minute interview. You're um, talking to two people who don't watch television. <laughs> yeah, but you'll know who he is. Uh, I can't it was just really bizarre to be like <gasps> Him too. What is this with like Australian actors, presenters, or whatever who have decided to be rally cry drivers in their free time? Australian uh, and car culture. It's just one of those things. It's it goes back forever and ever. Yeah, yeah. But um, I I enjoyed Ford versus Ferrari. It was a long film, but uh, definitely an interesting one and an enjoyable one. Um, do you mean sorry, sorry, Steph Grant Denyer? Mm. Yes, Grant Denyer, oh, yeah, yeah. for some reason, randomly in it. Yeah, the whole world yeah. is just going, what? I know, I know. Only Australians are going to know him because there's only a, so much, like, the pool of Australian personalities and talent is only so big. But Once again, Wikipedia for the win. He co-hosts Dancing Thank with you. the Stars and Celebrity Name Game. Oh, every fucking thing that he can get <laughs> onto for a season before it gets cut. Yeah, if you haven't seen haven't seen Rush, that one in particular I thought was a just a fun film 
just without having any knowledge of the history or anything like that, just a enjoyable story. Yeah, well, they both uh, both films that deal with those kind of figures that I was talking about earlier, those you know uh, people who go above and beyond or transform the sport uh, either through physical prowess or in, uh, oh, artistic yeah. prowess. Because Ford yeah. vs Ferrari is literally that of the two of the great icons of um, engineering going head to head on who could create the best car, and then Rush is yeah. the two racing drivers of who could be the best. You know, pushing through yeah. physical destruction and still coming out the other side. Uh, yeah, I, I I haven't seen Ford vs Ferrari, but I, I really enjoyed Rush, and it was Ron Howard, if I remember rightly, and I hate Ron Howard, so even that says something. Yeah, we can talk about my yeah, Ron yeah, Howard yeah, hatred some other day. Um. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I got like five or six of my bingo items, I think, out of ten. So, you know, nice. good evenings. What were the other ones? <laughs> oh, what were the other ones? Uh, the other ones we kind of didn't really talk to was Cars as Other. So I had in my list things like Christine, Maximum Overdrive, when they oh, yeah. transform into demonic things. Uh-huh. We kind of didn't get a chance to t- touch on that. Cars as uh, a litmus test for relationships. Um, I didn't have a specific film for that one, but in my head, there's that sort of that conversation that always seems to happen, which is the long suffering girlfriend or wife gets given a gift of some kind. And she says, how can you afford this? And his explanation is I sold my prized possession, my car for you to get whatever it is. Oh um, yeah. That, that sounds like a trope I've seen too many times. Yeah, exactly. And also the classic exactly. team thing um, of like, oh, uh, will you go out with me? I have this car that we can drive to the movies with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cars as savior or sacrifice was another one, which I think is just a very broad, broad one, which can be, I think, interpreted in lots of different ways. Brum. Um, Sorry, Sorry. What? <laughs> so am I the only one here who knows the classic children's television series Brum about an oh. animate car that goes around uh, helping people? It rings a vague bell. Brum, Brum. That's about all I remember of the theme song. But it was, and it was this like <laughs> really, really vintage car uh, who sneaks out of the garage and and goes around town. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, that was that was most of my list. So we did pretty good innings there. Excellent. <laughs> Christine ties in with a lot of these things as being a kind of anti-nostalgia embodiment mm. of the car. Mm. That again, like Tulane Blacktop, where the obsessive this obsessiveness erases the self and leads to no good. Mm. King has dealt with memories and nostalgia a lot, but he's always very good at kind of turning backwards on the things he's interested in. There's a lot of stuff in King's work that obviously deals with vehicles. Even before he was hit by a car, one of those great ironies of one of the things he fears ended up getting him. I was actually almost going to watch Maximum Drive Overdrive again the other day. That was an excellent film. <laughs> I will stand by yes, that. Yes, I know it's one of your favourites. Speaking of uh, cocaine fueled inventions. Oh, yeah, exactly. Allegedly. Oh, there's no yeah. I tweeted that in the other day. He hasn't blocked me, so I've tried. What was it? I was I was watching something and I had to tweet it in that I was like, is this, this the most 80s fuel 
cocaine-fueled 80s film ever. No, that would be Maximum Overdrive. Sorry, Mr. King. He didn't reply, funnily enough. Um, oh, what does that? That's going to drive me nuts. What, the trailer but, um, to the film itself? Yes, this was going to say, if you're out there and you haven't seen the trailer, look up the trailer which Stephen King appears in and hosts. He, it is amazing. He's just like... Just staring down the barrel of the camera saying, no one has ever gotten Stephen King right. So if you want to do something... Well, you got to do it yourself. Here's my film about killer trucks. Yes, <laughs> amazing. And it, I, I actually, no, I got to talk. If we're talking about the car films. I got to talk about Maximum Overdrive because that film, oh, so much amazing cocaine. If you if you've read Dance Macabre, which is his essay on horror in literature and film. I when I read that, the, the, for those who don't know, uh, Stephen King was originally a, an English teacher. You read the the first halves on literature and it's incredible. Like the breadth of his knowledge and the connections he makes, it's just, it's really, really brilliant. I highly recommend it. And then you get to the chapter, the, the half on film, and it's just Stephen King talking about growing up and watching B-grade sci-fi horror movies and how he loves them. And he has great insight, but it really does feel like day and night for reading them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Having that in my mind when I watched Maximum Overdrive, I was like, of course this makes sense. He had power, he had money. They said, what movie do you want to make? So he made the amped up 80s, ultra-violent, ACDC soundtrack version of the films he watched as a kid. If you watch it like that, it he nailed it. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good. Now film. that you're telling me that, it makes <laughs> yeah. sense. It's like ACDC is his favorite band, so of course he just like, hey, let's get ACDC to do the soundtrack. Of course, and it's just everything. If you think about it, it's like everything in this film is the amped up super version of what he loves. He did it. I love it. It's not good, but I will watch it at least every couple of years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty rad. Okay, so you want to know what the film was? Uh, yeah, go on, tell me. You so know. It's 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 I, the, are you gonna say it and I'm gonna know. It's the but... evil twin of two lane blacktop. <laughs> uh, one one lane. Oh, blacktop. American graffiti. Yeah. Oh, American boo, graffiti. Boo. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I deliberately didn't bring that up because I decided we kind of covered the the cars as youth culture and yeah, stuff when we talked there's about. There's nothing to talk about in regards to American Graffiti. It's a yeah. hollow, empty film, and Christine is right to point out that it'll only lead to you being well, possessed by a dirty old man. <laughs> well, we also didn't talk about Grease, which oh, yeah. uh, also is iconic with uh, with its car. I feel like Grease has more going for it. At least I don't know. There's a catchy songs and. John Travolta's hair and Olivia <laughs> Newton-John's hair. Like, that's still, I, that's, yeah, they're better than anything in American Graffiti. And on that bombshell. <laughs> okay, for our YouTube recommendation this week, oh boy, oh, I've got a great one for you here, folks. This is one that we showed at uh, Cinecult many years ago, my back-of-bar film night. Uh, it was actually programmed by Joel Branner, who used to co-host it, and co-hosted it for a while. This is a documentary called The Devil at Your Heels. Either of you know this one? No. No, I don't think so. Stuntman and daredevil Ken Carter, who was from Canada, all of his life grew up poor, desperately wanted to be a stunt driver, did not have a lot of luck. Evil Knievel was always doing bigger and better things and he just kept crashing. I remember this, yes. And so... They made a documentary about him and his attempt to jump a rocket-powered car over the St. Lawrence River, a distance of one mile. 
the documentary is incredible. It is terrifying and sad and hilarious. Um, was it the, I think Kenny Powers, the the character, was it from the, oh, what's his name? I can't think of it. But it's, it's one of those things that like a couple of people have taken off this guy and what he was trying to do for comedy characters over the years, which is actually pretty sad because Ken Carter did not have a particularly good life, even though he did attempt to live the dream and got it for a little bit. So The Devil at Your Heels, I think it's like 1972 documentary. It is on YouTube in full. It's just a great documentary on its own, but it's also one of those ones that was, this has to be a work of fiction. Someone made this up because we've seen this whole subgenre built on this kind of film that especially, you know, Will Ferrell and those kinds have been doing. And this is one of the, the kind of original, real deal origin of that. And as an addiction to... The car, the technology, the speed, the conquering space, and nature. The Devil at Your Heels is a really fantastic example of that and severely underseen, so I highly recommend you look that up on YouTube and we'll chuck up links on the blog or whatever we have set up and in the show links and whatnot and, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Let us know what you think of it. If you're on one of the social medias or drop us an email, you can follow us at home on Twitter now. Check us out at Podcast Vortex, one word, Podcast Vortex, which it, nobody talks about how Twitter just doesn't let you choose your own name anymore. They just like have this random mashup of the words that you want to have in it. But that's fine. We will be the Podcast Vortex. We will suck all <laughs> podcasts. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a poor choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm 14. I, I don't I'm not making any bones about it. <laughs> yeah, it's all. You're not making any good. bones, did you say? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm actually 87. Okay, there. Bone anymore? <laughs> okay, I think that's where we need to end it. Thanks everybody for listening. That's why I need the big car. You can email us on videovortexaus at gmail.com. That's videovortexaus, all one word, at gmail.com. And I'd like to end, if we may, on another quote by J.G. Ballard, writing in the mid-70s, that in Britain, the first motorways are already reaching across our cities. Many of them are motion sculptures of considerable grace and beauty, but they totally overpower the urban areas around and, all too often, below them. It may well be that these vast concrete intersections are the most important monuments of our urban civilization, the 20th century's equivalent of the pyramids. But do we want to be remembered in the same way as the slave armies who constructed what, after all, were monuments to the dead? Jesus Christ, JG, we said movement sculptures, movement sculptures! (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... Uh, cars are Dumb. fun. Yeah, is the cars are fun. Episode. That was that was a good topic. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I, yeah, I enjoyed that.